How good is this dry, sunny weather? It's just, I feel like I'm still drying out after all that wet. It's so good. And it's, it's good to be together and it's good to have already sung and prayed and heard a, a snippet of Sarah's story. Bless you for sharing that. Um, alrighty. Well, here we are as a bit of a new family of God. And as a family of God, as a spiritual family, what, what we're going to be attempting to do together as the months and years tick by is, in one sense, really basic. We just want to walk through life with Jesus together. Yep. Um, we're just going to walk through this. And, but what that's going to mean is we walk through a whole stack of joys and hardships together. Yep. Um, and so far in two years, we've... We've had a mix of both joys and hardship, but I think probably more joys, and I think some hardships are coming soon. Some of the joys we've walked through are we've seen babies born, yep, and they keep getting born, and we get to welcome them into this spiritual family. Uh, we've seen a few weddings, and um, there's another one coming up soon in a couple of weeks' time. Ew. Little you from Sam in the front there. Um, we have birthdays all the time, and uh, there's a birthday today. Where's Jake? Hey, he loves it. <laughs> um, we get to baptise new believers and people who are kind of standing for Christ in their, in their life at a particular moment. Um, so we've had some joys, and, and we'll have some more joys that come our way, and we walk through those joys together, which are, in a sense are easy to do. I think it's easier to celebrate with each other rather than it is to press into the grief when it comes for each other. But we're going to have losses. You know, we've got, we've got some people who are a bit, bit sick at the moment who will likely recover. Um, and we've got a couple of brothers who are more seriously sick. You know, got that kind of terminal kind of sickness verdict that's coming their way. And, um, and, and we will keep praying for healing always. And we trust in a God who can heal miraculously. So we always pray for healing and we, all, and we also brace ourselves for loss coming for us and grief coming. Um, some of you have lost loved ones just really recently and you know the grief that you're in right now. And I raise that because I think in the near future, in the coming weeks and months, you know, we're going to have some grief before us. Not that I'm trying to prophesy a particular moment, um, but even over the next bunch of years, we will grieve together. We'll, we'll grieve loss and sickness and death together. And we'll be attempting to walk closely with each other, with Jesus, just through these moments. Yep. Now, one of the things I would notice about grief um, off the back of severe loss and death um, um, is, is a common reaction and response from everyone. And, and you will have experienced this on some level when you, with whatever loss you've had up to this point. I'd notice this. When there's loss from death, it, it usually rattles us and reminds us to make the most of the people who are still with us and the loved ones who are around us and the situations you get and the things we still have. Yep, that's, that's usually a really common and I think really appropriate response. In the, off the back of loss, we kind of look and we go, well, I'm going to look at the people who are actually still here and I'm going to make the most of my time with them. 
I'm going to love them the best I can. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to speak words to them. I'm not going to let these moments go. I'm going to try and cherish them and love them. And, and usually you can kind of package all that desire under a bit of a mantra or a platitude that says, I'm going to seize the day. You've heard that one? Um, or, you know, a bit of good old carpe diem. I studied Latin at school, you know. <laughs> I'm going to seize the day. And, and there's something really appropriate, I think, off the back of loss. We get reminded to actually be in the moment and see the people around us and approach them in a loving way. But have you ever noticed that there are different ways to seize the day? Ever noticed people attempting to seize the day with really different approaches? People trying to make it count but end up doing really radically different things? You know, because I think your approach to carpe diem, to using your time well, will depend on a few factors. And one key factor that I want to bring to you today that will determine how you attempt to seize the day is this one. It's whether you're a person who believes that there is a God who you will stand before at the end of this life and his judgment will determine all eternity for you. If you believe that, if you believe there is a God and there is life beyond this life and where you get to spend that and how you get to spend is determined by the God who made you and you're going to stand before him, then surely that impacts the way you attempt to seize the day. Am I right? For the person who doesn't believe there's anything beyond this life, it, it's just these days, then to seize the day looks more simply as, um, well, I'm just going to milk this for all it's worth. I'm going to get as much out of every moment as I can. I'm going to try and make things work best as much as I can for myself and for those around me, usually loved ones. Um, some people have a higher level thing where they say, I'm going to try and leave the world a better place than I found it. But I think for most people... Um, the people they're thinking of leaving it better for is usually just their close loved ones because we more easily just think about milking the time for ourselves. But if there is life beyond this one and there is a day that's coming where you stand before the one who made you, who has intention for your life and he's the one who gives a verdict on the rest of your attendance. If that's true, you could call that judgment day, then surely to seize the day right now is to spend your days preparing well for that day, anticipating that day. Live your life with that day in mind. Surely the best use of your time right now is to spend it with the Lord in mind and all of eternity in mind. And, you know, I raise that because when you open up the book of Acts and, and, and particularly we work through these final chapters of the book of Acts and we follow Paul, I'm going to go out there and say he is seizing the day, but he's seizing the day in a really particular way. Not in a way where he's trying to milk it to make it the best it possibly can be for him, and those close by, he's seizing the day over and over again 
by choosing key moments to prepare himself and those who he comes across for that day. That's what he keeps doing. And it's pretty stunning and it's pretty radical and it's, it's not the usual response and reaction to the moments that we go through. And that's what I want to just look at one particular moment where he does that in the passage here this week and just think into it together, be encouraged by it together because if this is true, if, this, if there is a God and we're going to stand before him and there is an eternity that stretches out before us, then it matters how you seize the day. It matters what you do. So let's think about Paul, just a little bit of context as we dive into chapter 24. And some of you are well aware of this because you've been on this journey with us through the book of Acts. Um, the Apostle Paul here in this moment, he's gaining stacks of enemies for himself. He's going from city to city and just gathering not more friends, but more enemies who keep chasing him off and wanting to cause trouble for him. He's being accused of being a troublemaker himself, one who's inciting riots. There's all kinds of false accusations that are being levelled at him, but it's particularly from the Jews who are attempting to have him condemned and killed by the Romans, which sounds exactly what, what the Jews did with Jesus. And you're meant to see the parallel between Jesus and Paul's ministry. There are so many radically uncanny similarities between what Jesus experienced and what Paul experiences. It's almost as though Jesus is still alive and well and kicking and continuing his ministry through his followers and his apostles. It's almost as though he's alive and well and kicking today. And he absolutely is. And so here's Paul, and he's now on trial in a place called Caesarea, and he's coming before a particular Roman governor named Felix, and he gets the chance to present his case there, and we read it during the Bible reading, uh, like from verse 10 through to verse 21, he basically says, look, all these accusations that are being levelled at me, they're false, and you can check them out. You can easily look back in and find out what I was actually doing in those situations, and I've done nothing wrong, really. I haven't been causing riots. I haven't been causing disturbances. Um, and we'll pick it up there in verse 22, off the back of Paul making a bit of a defence for himself. Verse 22, you got it in front of you? Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, that's an interesting little note. So this guy's a Roman governor, but he knows well the way, which is what the Christians were called. The ones who were following the way of this guy, Jesus, are called the way. I love it. Love that little description of Christians. Um, Felix is really aware of what this way is, probably because he married a Jewish woman. We'll meet her in a minute, and it's likely through that channel that he became aware of this. But either way, he's well acquainted with it. Um, he, what does he say? He adjourned the proceedings. Um, when Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I'll decide on your case. And he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. So now here's Paul, and I want you to picture Paul, and I want you to picture what it's like to be Paul. He's now under guard, which is effectively in prison. He's got a few friends able to come and visit, so small comforts, but he's in prison under this Roman governor named Felix, He's already given his account um, to, to defend himself. But now what he gets is multiple moments to keep speaking with Felix. Felix keeps calling him out um, to speak again with him. And we're going to zoom in on one particular account where Paul gets to speak to Felix and his wife, um, Drusilla. Now, Paul here, I want you to note, Paul has got the opportunity to seize the day in a particular way 
and make his life better. He's got the opportunity to kind of get himself out of trouble. He's got the opportunity for some life improvement for himself here, but he chooses to seize the day very differently, and I want you to notice that. He's got the opportunity to kind of get himself out of trouble when he comes before Felix, because Felix, if you pick it up there in verse 26, skip down there with me, look what Felix says. Well, it says, at the same time, he, Felix, was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. So Felix keeps getting Paul to come out of prison and talk with him. Why does he do it so much? He's hoping that Paul will offer him a bribe and then he'll be able to let Paul go free. This is the kind of governor that Felix was. This is the kind of opportunity that Paul had. He had the opportunity, he would have been well aware of it, he would have been told by many people, you just need to offer a bribe, mate, and you can get out. I reckon he also had the opportunity to speak about the kind of things that might make Felix favourably disposed towards him and friendly towards him, but Paul keeps choosing to talk about the things that cause trouble for him. He, 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 He continues to choose to talk about Jesus. That's what he chooses to do. So I want you to notice... Paul chooses to seize the day and instead of offering a bribe or talking about things that might make Felix like him a little bit more and let him go, instead he speaks about this. Look at verse 24. This is the incident I want you to zoom in on. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, that's important, who was was Jewish. He sent for Paul And he listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. So there's what Paul chooses to speak to Felix about. Give him an opportunity. He's going to talk to someone about how they need to put their faith in Christ Jesus. He's putting it on Felix. Felix and Drusilla, wife, the big thing that matters here is that you come to put your trust in the work of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. This is what Paul talks about with Felix. Now, you might think, well, that's not so radical. Why would that cause so much trouble? It's because of what Paul also talked about that kind of complements a call to put your trust in Jesus. And it gets described as he goes on in verse 25. Look at it. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, this is how Paul is speaking about faith in Christ Jesus. He's calling Felix and his wife Drusilla to come and put their trust in Jesus and he's doing that off the basis of speaking about righteousness, self-control and judgment to come. Righteousness meaning the righteous life that God requires of you, the righteous life that he's called you to live, the way you are to honour him by treating the people around you and loving them and serving them in a helpful, godly way. I think that's what he means by the righteous life. And and he also speaks about, what's the next thing? Self-control. So he talks to Felix about how he needs to actually relate towards himself in a way where you control yourself. You don't just act according to every impulse and desire. You actually honour God by the way you actually speak and live and think. And that's what he's speaking to Felix and Drusilla about. The righteous life you need to live and the self-control that you need to have in order to honour God with your life and the judgement that is to come. The fact that you will stand before that God and need to give an account for how righteously you've lived. 
and how much self-control you've had. This is what Paul is speaking to them about, and in the midst of that, calling them to put their trust in Jesus. How does Felix respond to Paul speaking about these things? Well, what does it say halfway through verse 25? Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. Um, when I find it convenient, I'll get you back again. So Felix is frightened when Paul speaks about the judgment that is to come and the righteous life that God requires. He's afraid and he says, oh, that's enough, mate. That'll, that'll do you. I do not want to hear any more. Why don't you go on and get out of here? Why is Felix afraid? When someone's just explaining to him why he needs to have faith in Christ Jesus, why is he afraid? It's because he's hearing about the reality of judgment and it's because likely he's getting a sense of his ability to live the righteous life. I think he's had his conscience pricked. I actually think he's feeling rebuked and convicted by what Paul is speaking to him about. And I think Paul knows full well the kind of man that Felix is and that's why Paul is speaking to him about the righteous life. Now, we've already heard a bit about Felix. He's the kind of guy who wants a bribe. So he's a governor, he's someone in leadership in a community, he's meant to be there to serve for the good of the community and he's trying to get bribes and it's likely because that's the way he operated. So he is corrupt in the way he's going about his leadership. He's corrupt and on top of that, if you do a little bit of digging around with Felix, it's not hard to find out that he's also immoral. So his wife, Drusilla, used to be King Agrippa II's wife until he came for her and through seductive, sneaky, underhanded ways, stole Drusilla from the king to be his own wife. The guy is shady, he's immoral, he's corrupt and Paul gets a chance to speak to him and Paul speaks to him about the righteous life that God requires and the self-control that you need to have and the fact that you're going to be judged for the life that you live. No wonder he's afraid. Felix is here and thinking, well, if this is true, I'm in trouble. But can you see why Paul wants Felix, and likely Drusilla as well, to consider their failings, to consider their wickedness and their sin? You see, it's only once you consider those things that, that you find yourself feeling the need for faith in Jesus. It's only once you, you see yourself standing before a perfectly holy God and needing to give an account for your life that you, that you might start to consider how imperfect you are and the failings you've had and how you've fallen so far short in so many ways, in the ways you relate to others, in the ways you relate to yourself. And I tell you what, if you, have got, if, if you find yourself in that place, that is going to direct you towards needing a saviour. It's going to be directing you towards seeing the great need for faith in Jesus. And I think this is why Paul's doing it. He wants them to face the reality of the judgment that's to come in order to help them embrace faith in Jesus. You see, faith in Jesus or trusting in Jesus makes little sense until you face your own sin and the judgment that's coming for it. Then when you face that, you actually look at the work of the cross and you see what's on offer there, which is someone else being judged for your sin. Someone else bearing in their body what you deserve 
And I tell you what, if you look towards that with a reality, with an with a acute sense of your own sin, you can find yourself thinking, trusting in Jesus is the best news I've ever heard. I must put my faith in Jesus. It is the only way I can approach Judgment Day with any kind of confidence, is to approach it confident that someone else is going to take my judgment. And this is what we've got as Christians to celebrate. This is how Paul chooses to seize the day. He doesn't use the opportunity to improve his own circumstance and make his life better in any way. He uses it to prepare anyone and everyone he comes across for that day. That day that is definitely going to come. Paul's eyes are fixed on judgment, on the judgment day. And it's interesting, the language that Paul uses throughout Acts, I'm not sure if you noticed, but he calls that day the resurrection. Have you noticed that language? He calls it the resurrection. And here's the thing, you, you, you might have just considered using that language in regards to what Christians get beyond this life, but Paul uses it in regards to what everyone gets beyond this life. There's this day that's called the resurrection where everyone gets raised to stand before the Lord. Have a look at it there with me. Look at verse 21. You see the language that he uses there. Um, Paul's kind of defending himself, saying, I've done nothing wrong. He says, and verse 21, unless it's this one thing, I shouted when I stood in their presence. So apparently in their presence at some time, he, he shouted this out, um, which is kind of interesting. He says, um, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial here before you today. So Paul wants to focus everyone's attention on this day that he calls the resurrection. Now, you might read that and think, well, that says the resurrection of the dead, Tim. Does that mean everyone gets raised? Well, look at verse 15. It's really explicit there. Again, Paul's speaking and he says, and I have, and I have the same hope as in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. You got that? So what is this resurrection that's coming? Well, it's judgment day. It's, it's, it's for the righteous and the wicked. It's for everyone. Everyone will be raised and stand before the Lord on this day when he will judge and give a verdict. Now, some of you hear about this concept of a judgment day and I want you to be honest about how you're feeling and what you're thinking, because I'm going to go ahead and guess that some of you, whether you'll say it or not, are sitting here thinking, oh, I don't think so, you know? Pfft. Feeling a bit sceptical about the whole concept of a judgment day. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, it's, kind of, it's not likely, you know? It's not probable. It's probably not going to happen. Let's just stay focused on this life. And if that's the case, if you don't think there is a judgment day, then you probably find these kind of moments where someone's rabbiting on about judgment day, you're probably thinking, yeah, yeah, you're just trying to scare people into becoming Christians. If judgment day is true, that's exactly what I want to do with my life. You ought to be afraid if it's real. It ought to be one of, at least one of the key reasons why you'd come and put your trust in Jesus. So if it's true, yeah, scare tactics. But if you think it's not true, then you probably think, yeah. If you don't think it's true, let me just ask you this one question. If you think Judgment Day is just a bit of a joke and you don't need to worry about it, let me ask you this one question. 
Do you believe in a God? Yeah. Do you believe in the concept of a God? Meaning a being who actually made all that we know and have. That's what the concept, that's what the definition of God is. He's the one through whom everything got life. And if you believe in a God, you believe that there is someone who gave you life, then surely if he's powerful enough to give you life once, why would he not be able to then, after you die, give you life again? Surely he can do that, right? Yep. And in fact, that's Paul's logic and reasoning in one of his particular lines in chapter 26. Have a look at it. In a, we'll go there next week. In a, Darcy's going to take us there next week. But look at, look at chapter 26, verse 8. Paul, in one of his speeches, puts it like this. He says, Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? You know, we sit here and think, Nah, well, how can there be anything beyond the grave? How can life be given again? But if there is a God who gave you life once, why do you think it's incredible that he could give life again? As if he can't. As if he can't raise every single being that he gave life to once again to stand before him. It just actually makes logical, reasonable sense if you believe that there is a God. Yep. If there is a God, he's certainly able to give you life again. Now, where am I up to? Oh, here we are. And if you, you, know, you read the scriptures, and it's pretty clear, he says there's going to be that day. If that day is coming, it's worth living this life anticipating that moment. And, and I want you to be honest about how you might be feeling about that moment right now, just as we talk about it. How confident are you that if you were to stand before God very soon, he would look upon you and assess your righteousness and your self-control and come to the conclusion that you have lived a fantastically righteous life. (laughs) The, The exact life that he requires, the exact life that he created you for. How many of you are confident that you could stand before him based on your own effort to live that righteous life The truth be told, the only way for us to face Judgment Day confidently is to be confident in someone else taking the judgment for our failure to live a perfectly righteous life and a perfectly self-controlled life. And this is the way that a Christian person can actually look ahead at the Judgment Day and instead of simply tremble in their boots, can actually, like Paul uses language, he's like, I've got hope in that day. And when he uses the word hope, he means confident, positive expectation about that day. That's the way Paul's thinking about Judgment Day. That's the way he's thinking about the resurrection. And that is the way Christians can think and approach the day. Excited anticipation. It's a day where I get raised and I get granted life forever. Not based on my ability to live an epically righteous life. I'm hopeless not based on my ability to be perfectly self-controlled, that's for sure, but based on someone else's ability to live that kind of life and his gift that he took my judgment. That's how I can approach that day. That's how you can approach that day. That's why we need to be called to put faith in Jesus. It's the only way to approach Judgment Day, the resurrection, with confidence. And if that day is coming and you believe it is coming, 
then how's that going to help you seize this day? I want to suggest we seize the day by living in anticipation for that day, by doing at least these three things. Number one, you make sure you get faith in Jesus yourself. Number two, you make sure you live your life having that faith strengthened and going deeper. And number three, doing everything you can to lead others to get that same faith in Jesus, if that's the only hope we have to get beyond this day. And I tell you what, if you live that way, seizing the day in that way now, then on that final day when it comes, I guarantee you of this, when it comes and you look back at the way you lived, you will not regret any effort made or any price paid to seize the day in that way. To live in a way that actually sees your own faith strengthened and helps other people come to faith and have that strengthened. You, you won't regret any price you pay. And if that's the case, then friends, this is the day. This is the time to live well. This is the day to seize. And it starts with you and your own faith. Get one and invest in it being deepened, your faith. Grow down deep roots in Jesus now. And I say that now because what I want to say is don't wait until the end before you start attempting to grow strong in the Lord. And I think that's a mistake that we can make. You think, oh, I've got so much to do. I'm going to wait till the end and then I'm going to get deep and serious about Jesus. And I'm going to get down deep roots right at the end. I just say, do not wait for the final days. And that is because when the final days comes, chances are your energies to be able to press into the things of Jesus, your capacity to be able to think well, your ability to be able to love God and love others is going to be reduced and reduced and reduced. And in that day, the only faith you'll have to stand on is the one you develop already earlier when you had the energy and you had the ability to make decisions about how you spend your time so right now is the day to grow deep right now is the day to be strengthened while you've still got the ability and you can still direct your energy and you can still cast your attention towards something today's the day you might know of um, <clears throat> that classic verse in Ecclesiastes it says, uh, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, Remember the Lord in the days of your youth. Yeah, yeah. Now, sometimes we read that verse and we're like, yeah, that's a verse for teenagers, you know? That's a verse for people in their youth, the young people. Yeah, they really should be remembering the Lord because they're the ones that need to practice self-control. They're the ones with all the problems. They need That word youth, oh, you need to know, that word youth does not mean teenagers. That, that's the way we use the word. But that word youth is talking about all of the years that you get until the final moment where you start to really crumble. And if you read through chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, that's what's being described. Remember the Lord in the days of youth, before the days of trouble come. And then it lists out this almost humorous description of the end. It's not funny, it's disastrous, but it's basically when your body's just on the decline in a very steep way. Your sight goes, your hearing goes, 
Your speech goes, your ability to connect goes, your ability to be strong and virile goes. It, it all starts to go. And what we're told is to remember the Lord in the days of your youth. In other words, all of the days before that day comes are the days to remember the Lord in the days of youth. So I just kind of want to say to all of you who are right here, right now, you are in the days of your youth. Because if you weren't, you wouldn't have been able to get yourself here. So as long as you've got energy, as long as you've got the ability to choose what you, how you direct your time and energy, as long as you've still got a little bit of strength in your bones, as, still as you've still got a little bit of zest in your voice, as, you, as, as long as you've still got a little bit of anything, you are in the days of your youth. And on that point, I could probably hear an amen, yeah? You're still in your youth. So these are the days to remember the Lord. And to remember the Lord doesn't simply mean, yeah, that's right, I just need to kind of remember that he's there. Yeah, he's there. No, no, no. It's to live with him in the forefront of your mind, to allow your life to be centred on him. It's to actually live all your days preparing for the day you stand before him. To remember the Lord is to actually seize the day with the Lord in mind. And this is the day we get to do that. And so let me finish with just a list of things. Now is the time to get serious about your Christian life and commitment to his people. Now is the time to put your trust firmly in the work of Jesus. Now is the time to repent of your sin and keep repenting of your sin, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to change you. Now is the time to develop healthy rhythms and routines in Bible reading and prayer so that you learn how to delight in the Lord from a deep place in your soul each day. Now's the time to develop that. Don't think you're going to be able to do that right at the end. Now's the day. Now is the time to practice how to be in the scriptures and in prayer with your brothers and sisters. Now is the time to learn how to serve and help others and help them grow in their faith and invest your time in that. Now is the time to decide to structure your whole weekend around the priority of the gathering of God's people. Now is the time to give generously of what you have been entrusted with by a generous God. Now is the time to love people, your friends, your family, your neighbours who don't yet have faith in Jesus. Now is the time to love them enough to tell them the truth by the way you live and by actually telling them the truth and risk what might come. Don't put this off. Now's the time to seize the day. Now's the time to live these, our lives, these hours, these weeks, these months, these years, anticipating that we will stand before the Lord. And the only way you can be confident to be able to stand before him is through faith in Jesus. Seize the day. Let me pray.
Father God, we thank you so much for the witness of Paul and how he can see clearly the realities of who you are and what's to come and that enabled him to instead of being focused on making choice after choice for his own well-being, he makes choices to seize the day in a way that would be good for other people's faith and for his own. Lord, would you help us? We feel the great need for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives to help us be focused on you. Help us to live with this day in mind. Please, Lord, give us the strength to see and decide and live and encourage each other to live for that day. Lord, we want to use this time you've given us well. We want to delight in, in a life that's focused like that. And we want you to get the glory that you deserve. And the people said, Amen. Amen.